This is episode number 115 with Dan Norenberg. Welcome to Transform Talks, the only podcast that cuts straight through the hype and noise on supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, the CEO and co-founder of the Future Insights Network. Join me as I uncover the stories and delve deeper into the topics that really matter to you. You know, there are literally millions of books on leadership, but what actually makes high-performing leaders and teams work? More importantly, how can they thrive during an age of disruption? Over the course of my career and on this podcast, I've spoken to hundreds of business leaders to explore the traits, skills, and other characteristics that exceptional leaders and teams embody. But this is the first time I'm sitting down with an executive advisor who has coached well over 100 high-performing executive teams. In this special episode, I'm going to be talking to Dan Norenberg. Dan is going to help us unpick some of the characteristics that underpin great leadership and provide us with some actionable advice on how to improve the little things that, when combined, can actually have a tremendous impact on performance. I'm super excited for this episode as Dan is going to be putting me in the hot seat by asking me some questions on my own leadership experiences. My guest Dan improves leadership performance and organization results through executive ownership his transformational growth process for executive teams. As a trusted advisor, consultant, and professional speaker, Dan's mission is to enable executive teams and their organizations to play at their best. He's advised and coached over 100 executive and senior leadership teams and has led leadership growth initiatives in over 17 countries. Now, leadership is a topic that really fascinates me, so let's just jump right in. Dan, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's a pleasure, Maria. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you know, before we started recording, you and I were talking about um, a quote, a quote that I I mentioned that I have on a little note card uh, in my office, which is from Bob Proctor about the biggest gap in your life or in success, I think, but the biggest gap in your life is that between what you know and what you do. Now, I'm really interested in talking to you. Uh, not just because of your extensive background in helping leaders and your book and everything you do, but there are a lot of failure rates in transformational projects in supply chain, a lot of failures. And a lot of those failures come down to um, leadership problems, cultural problems. Uh, what, what in your experience, you know, uh, and following on from the quote, how can a leader navigate this sort of complexity that they're dealing with every day? Because we know what we need to do. There's not a lot of rocket science, right? We know what we need to do, but why don't we do it? Well, that's a great question. I think there's you know, many facets to that. And so talking about transformation and not simply you know, talking about um, supply chain leaders when I say this, but I think oftentimes at the very top, we communicate a change or a transformation Um, And as a senior leader, whether it's in supply chain or something else, you have the impression that maybe everybody has the same level of knowledge that you do and that people are in the same cabin in the train as you are. And what happens then over time, we see that the transformation doesn't move as fast as we'd like it to. And then maybe there's a shift in direction. The reality is that you know, if you're down in the middle of the organization or towards the tail end of the organization, the rank and file, it might take two, three, four, five months before you really see evidence that yeah. this change is really going to take place. And you're looking for leaders that really own that transformation, that they're dropping down into various parts of the organization to show up and see how that 
uh, transformation is impacting you. So I think a lot of it, there's a difference between what I call uh, calling out a transformation in authorship and ownership. Authorship is simply yeah. sort of prescribing it, writing it up and communicating it, and then letting it loose. Maybe that's oversimplifying a little bit. But I think the, the large challenge with transformations is people don't really own it, you know, throughout its duration at various levels of the organization. So your book, Executive Ownership, you describe a transformation, sorry, transformational leadership framework for top performing teams. Yeah, it's a mouthful. You describe it. Yes. Uh, you say that change, improvement, and growth start at the top of the organization, not the middle or bottom of the organization. So, how did you come across, or how did you come up with that thought about top-down leadership? You know, and what are the ramifications for leaders? What what can they take away from that? Yeah, let me give you a little bit of a backstory on that because you know I grew up in the U.S., studied there, worked in Silicon Valley for ten years. One of those startups went out of business. I sort of thought I was coming to Europe for nine days and became 30 years. And being an American in Europe, you know, I couldn't get a job. So I started my own consulting company that had a strong background in, in coaching and consulting and built a leadership boutique called Envision Learning, which was sort of working the middle talents, uh, developing talents uh, across to Europe and, and the world. And in doing that work, from time to time, working at the beginning of leadership to the middle, from time to time, somebody's from the CEO's office or the executive vice president of HR would come to me and say, you know, we've seen the work that you're doing, you know, with our middle management. And quite frankly, our executive team is sort of struggling. And we wondered if you would maybe see if you could give them a hand. And I was, you know, very flattered and said, well, I, of course, I'd be happy to talk to them about that. And of course, they put a gentle, uh, their arm would go on my elbow and say, well, don't get your hopes up. They've already worked with three other consultants so far this year. But that was sort of my invitation into the C-suite. So I don't come from a large, you know, academic university or one of the big um, four consulting companies. I've kind of come from the streets. That was my invitation into the C-suite. And what I saw was, and perhaps this mirrors your, uh, maybe some of your perceptions, I'd be interested in what you think on this as well, is that I saw people with a tremendous amount of intellectual firepower and uh, a strong understanding of the business and very, very ambitious. But as an organizational unit, they just didn't play well together as a team. The way they talked to each other, the way they made decisions, uh, the way they acted as a unit outside of that leadership team, or even the way they developed or executed on their strategy. And the second thing I noticed is that they didn't have a clear understanding about how their, let me even use the word dysfunction, or miscalibration mm -hmm. at, at the senior level, how that has such a huge impact on the rest of the organization. So that was my sort of observational evidence that I've made now working with over 100 leadership teams. And on the other side of that coin, if we look at it this way, there is no organizational unit anywhere that has um, more decision-making authority, more access to resources, more impact on a company culture than the executive and strategic leadership teams of an organization. It only makes sense to start at the top of the organization to drive change and transformation. And that's my view on things. I used to, you know, I started this business with my co-founder because we used to have an events business and we would go to so many events. I was, I was traveling so much. Sometimes I would wake up in a hotel not knowing what country I was in. Uh, but I got to meet a lot of people and I got to talk mm. to a lot of people. And I was always astounded at the meetings I would have at very senior level, EVP, C-suite level, uh, big multinational corporations, where they would sort of admit, maybe in a confessional style, 
that really they were out of their depth in certain places, in certain areas, that they were struggling in others, that, um, and, and I, you know, that it essentially, these are, like you said, a lot of intellectual firepower, a lot of educational firepower, a lot of, you know, all the ingredients to making it work, yet they were struggling. And so I was astounded by that, the fact that I thought, looking from the outside in, right, that these multinational, multi-billion, Fortune 100 businesses had it all under control, mm. had it all, you know, they, they if, if anything, they were probably the, um, I don't know, the textbook definition of how you should manage a team. I started to realize, which are a lot of conversations, a lot of conversations, that that wasn't the case, mm. that really we're all in the same sort of situation, you know, in managing. And I like to compare it to, you uh, you know, trying to manage disruption and change or transformation in the era of disruption is kind of like trying to change the tires in your car on the highway whilst it's going and then add COVID to that and, and all the disruption that we're currently facing whilst you're on fire kind of thing. You know, mm. this, is, this is where we are at right now, right? So add all of that to leadership today and I think you get a lot of challenges. You get a lot of problems. And so where do you start? I don't know. I don't know if I'm, you know what I mean? I'm sort of talking around well, you know, what a, you're it's saying. A great, it's, a, it's a great insight. And it's sort of a tribute to you as a successful leader that these, you know, very senior leaders, that they trusted you to be able to share their vulnerability. I even opened the book with a story about vulnerability because the, the real tragedy of, this, of the situation that you just shared is that person or those people shared with you where they felt sort of uncomfortable or not competent or not able. But the likelihood is, at least through my experience, interviewing over a thousand leaders and a hundred different leadership teams, is that very often their very own colleagues don't understand where they're struggling. Mm -hmm. and if I can't share with my colleagues where I'm struggling, how can they help me improve? And of course, the cascading effect of that is if I'm in a leadership team and I don't feel that I'm that I can share where I need development or help or something like that because I might get criticized or seen as being incompetent, then we're going to set a pattern for the rest of the organization that everybody's going around trying to pretend that they really know what they're doing when we really all need help. And so I think one of the triggers, at least one of the things that I've seen in in highly evolved and successful leadership teams is their ability to express vulnerability. This is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. And yeah, by yeah. doing that, then they know how to compensate and provide where maybe somebody has strength to help in others, whether you're in supply chain or another type of business. So um, I think that's I a really valuable insight. And on that point, I also wanted to ask you, yeah. if I may, you know, in all your travels and the experiences you've had on many different countries and continents, are there any sort of you know, patterns or behaviors or habits that you've seen that certain that leadership teams have done that have held them back from playing at their best? Whether oh, it's gosh, so many. I mean, I think I think you could probably I could write several books on bad leadership, you know, and I think mm. we all can. I think a lot of us probably can think back to either bosses uh, that did really good jobs, but equally that did a bad job, you know, mm -hmm. people. Um, I, and, and you know what? And, and I'm going to add something else here. I've done things that I think looking back now were bad examples, you know, examples of bad leadership. So I think that to me, the bad leader have has one thing in common, and that is that they are a closed door mm -hmm. and they are a closed door to their own failings, to the, their surroundings, their shortcomings, and they don't look to improve. You know, they don't look to acknowledge 
that vulnerability that we talked about. So going back to my story of why we started this business, we wanted to capitalize or, or we wanted to help these people connect with each other. Because I, I don't have the answer to say, this is how you make a A-level or grade A-level supply chain, because I'm not a supply chain director. But I know a couple people that maybe together, you guys can come up with the, the answer. So I think to sort of turn your question on its head, I think I've seen bad leaders who are, um, you know, closed off, closed off to things. That's probably the biggest single mm -hmm. trait that I have. I think leaders with a lot of hubris that also believe that they know the answers, that they're the only fountain of information. And so therefore don't listen to other people. I think good leaders are leaders that know their strengths, but they also know their weaknesses. Mm. They're leaders for a reason. So, you know, I sometimes in my teams, I think, you know, I'm going to listen to what people have to say because you want, you don't want to live in an eco chamber. You want to listen and you want to navigate complexity and disruption by diverse opinions, right? But equally, you're a leader because you know that you've got a wealth of um, information and uh, a wealth of experience. My dad says something which I love. I don't know if it's a Latin American or Spanish or Italian uh, saying, but it is that the devil knows more by being old than by being the devil. Mm. You know, uh, I love it. It's a Spanish thing. And, and, and his view, because he's 85 years old, is I know a lot of stuff because I'm old. I've lived it. Yeah. So I think to me, if you were to ask me what I think makes me a good leader, I hope, or what I would hope to be a good leader is one word. And you know what that is? Mm. Failure. The yeah. fact that I've failed. And the fact that I have failed and learned. Yeah. And, and I think to me, fundamentally, it's learning from failure and learning from success too, yeah. if that that's answers a, your question. That, that's, that's a great insight. And that's, I think, why your organization has such an energy and attracts the talent that it does because you're encouraging people to you know, go where no person has gone before, as William Shatner said, and that, and that through those failures and through those stumbles, we'll learn something and get back up and move forward. And you know, and I, I agree with you, this idea, there's this good and bad, it's, it's about if you're closed out to the opportunities um, from failure or the feedback of how others might perceive you, you're not going to go very far. And that was one of the things that, that's one of the things that brought the book about. Um, it was the, the book, Executive Ownership, was not intended to be an academic exercise. It was meant to be a collection of sort of the experiences that I'd had with over 100 leadership teams. And one of those was exactly the point that you just mentioned. You know, how can I encourage uh, people to be open with each other, to identify shortfalls and then be able to profit from that and, and reboot and regain? And so we introduce things like expectations exchanges in executive teams where we take, you know, a half a day simply and let them pair up. Now we call that speed dating, but but to pair up and say, you know, what do I appreciate about working with you? Um, what would I suggest that you could do differently and things of that nature. And it's just amazing, which seems like very basic fundamental communication exchanges. But in the heat of the day and the, and these executive teams that are moving very fast, also in supply chain, people don't often take the time or think they have permission to give that kind of feedback. But when they do give that, it sort of, it really strengthens, strengthens the team and sets an example to the rest of the organization that we develop that feedback culture that we know is so rich and important to high-performing organizations. I think, you know, the basics are uh, things that perhaps we take for granted, right? So doing the basics, we all know, right? Like I was saying to you, I think before the camera was rolling, you know, I, I kind of know that I probably shouldn't be having chocolate, you know, snacks, especially now that I'm sitting all day uh, because I'm not traveling into work, but I do it anyway because it feels good. I think we as humans know fundamentally the right things, the basics, 
that we do, and then we don't do them, and then wonder why uh, there are problems, right? So, for instance, for me, and I'm, I'm forgive me, I, I am going to swear at the moment and use the drop an f bomb, but to me, one of my favorite sayings is assumption is the mother of all fuck ups. Mm. Uh, it is when you assume, and I say this all the time because either my team will assume something, but well, I thought so-and-so was going to do it, or I thought you were going to do it, or actually I thought the client understood, or I thought actually, or I thought, and there's a lot of, I think leaders do that too. Well, I thought so-and-so knew that I didn't mean anything by that, or I thought he knew that he or she knew that they were going to do. And I think if we need to be better at communicating both myself and my business and you and your business and all of us and supply chain leaders, all of us need to take more time in communicating. Is that something that you've found as well? Yeah, I mean, there are two really uh, cool points there that we could unpack. One is about fundamentals. It's about the basics, the fundamentals, and the other is about ownership, you know, really owning something, even if it's not yours. And we know that even, especially in supply chain, highly successful supply chain organizations are people that really stretch. You know, they want to make sure that that, that customer perceives value and that the organization is profitable. And so the good supply chain folks that I've worked with, they're always stretching beyond what's really theirs, what's really their responsibility, or what they're accountable for, because they own it. And that sets a good mark. So I think that's something that's, that's also tied to the communication that you talked about. And the other point that you mentioned was thinking about basics and fundamentals. Let's face it, it's 221 and business is getting complex and sophisticated and data-driven and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's really the fundamentals that are core to drive, to creating the culture yeah. uh, of high performance. And let me just give an example. Meeting culture, for example, I'm working with either strategic leadership teams or executive leadership teams, and I'm often in observing their executive board meetings. And of course, there's a little ho-hum. We've got this consultant who's very high paid sitting here watching our meetings, whether it's in German or in English, it doesn't matter. And they're thinking, you know, what can this guy really bring? And then I provide some basic feedback about starting on time, about using the agenda, about determining what the decision points are, how they follow up on. And they realize that they begin to coast in their executive meetings. Now, this is the highest paid group of men and women in the business, yeah, yeah, dealing yeah. with the most important issues. And what I point out to them, even if you start the minute eight, even if you start the meeting eight minutes late, please don't complain in your organization when your projects don't finish on time. You know, if you don't follow through on the points that you decided the, the meeting before, don't accuse other people of not following through on their commitments to customers. So it's, it's really basic stuff that then they can go back and transfer that to their organization. So I think that, yes, it is a sophisticated world out there. Um, and that's important to recognize how we deal with complexity, but it's the fundamentals, whether it's in music or sports or business that create the foundations for cultures of high performance. Do you know, I'm gonna tell you an anecdote. Well, I'm gonna tell you something that maybe people don't know about me. Uh, I used to play basketball. And uh, playing basketball in the States is a serious business oh, for girls, bet. because I'm going to say, you know, this was a while ago, many, many years ago, uh, but girls sports is very serious in the United States. Uh, all sports is very serious in the United States. I played competitively, not just on my school team. I also played for the amateur athletics union. Um, so I played probably about two or three teams a year in basketball since the age of five, probably to the age of 20. Um, and Ooh. it was a very competitive thing I had. I mean, I'm stats obsessed because of that. 
I was a high performing athlete. I was looking to go very far with that until an injury happened, which is another story. But, mm-hmm. uh, but um, the point I'm making with this is I knew that in my job as a basketball player, I had one spot and it was my spot, right? That mm-hmm. spot was the spot that I would shoot from. And I would make a point to do a thousand shots per practice mm-hmm. from that one spot. Cause I knew that if I did that from that spot, if I held my hand a certain way, if I put my elbow in a certain way, 1000 times that at least I was doing my job right there in that spot. They were fundamentals of, of the basket. The whole basketball game, of course, was much bigger than me in my spot, but I made a point to do all the, the small things well, the things that other people take for granted. Am I, is my elbow aligned with my, you know, with my wrist? Is my knee aligned with my elbow, et cetera, et cetera. So I think to take that to business, I think sometimes we overlook the fundamentals mm. and we spend a lot of times strategizing or in big ticket conversations and overlook the small stuff like starting meetings on time. Like, does this meeting have an agenda? Is this meeting going to end on time? Uh, am I setting the right example? Have I written the notes? And I think from my point of view, when you talk about transformational change and cultural issues and why these things fail, I think it's a lot of things, tech, processes, et cetera, but I also think people forget the fundamentals. Hmm. So that's a, that's a great story. And I come from, I'm originally from Iowa, which is the middle part of the United States and, and um, sports for young men and young women is, is everything there. It's everything. And women's sports, and I grew up quite a long time ago, is it an equal standing yeah. with the men? You know, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really, and I came from a school where the girls were winning uh, uh, state championships and stuff like that. So it was it was really high level. But you Curious touched on an interesting point about your basketball and your sweet spot and how you repeated that. And it's another thing for leadership teams. You know, if leadership teams, they know that they've got a number of, let me say, critical interactions that they have to do. Types of communication, meetings yeah. they have to have, presentations they have to give, uh, strategic overviews that they have to do. And yet my observations are, and I'd be interested in yours as well, is they often sort of go in and wing those situations without practicing those. And one of the things that I bring to the projects that I work on is to help identify what are the high yield moments of of, of a life of your leadership team? And how can we replicate those and practice those and give each other feedback so that you're really at the top of your game when you hit that sweet spot like you did in your basketball match? That's a that's a great analogy. Well, you know, I think that's a good point there. I mean, as leaders, how much do we practice? Because we are essentially apprentices all day long, aren't we? We are in the thick of it. We are, you know, really busy. I'm sure like you, I mean, I, I I see your bookshelf. I've got a bookshelf, several bookshelves of books that I'm constantly dipping in and out of to try to keep myself up to date. But what are we doing from, again, to go back to my point of the fundamentals? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think we do a lot of strategizing and strategic conversations, but the tactical things, you know, things like being a better listener, things like uh, understand having empathy and understanding what your team is going through and why they might be struggling, not assuming you know, certain, certain things like that, communicating better, you know, I mean, even little things like I implemented in our businesses because through COVID, right. Um, in our business, we were all like everyone else online, having online meetings. And I was finding, I don't know about you, but I was finding that I was like back to back to back meetings and I would forget to eat 
or I would not, I'd, I'd, I'd be bursting by like two, three hours or four hours of meetings. I'd be like, oh my God, I have to go to the bathroom or I haven't had a drink of water. This was, I was killing myself. So we implemented a rule that meetings have to end five minutes before the hour. Uh, so that way people could go and do stuff, you know, get a cup of tea, get a cup of coffee, go pet the dog, you know, go to the bathroom. And well, I think yeah, this is, this is one of the coming in, I'm sorry, coming in, but no, I was just say, I think that's important. it just reminds me, it reminds me of one of the discoveries that I made in this work, this big piece of work with all these leadership teams is that what I noticed was, is that um, the vast majority of those teams coming back to your point about fundamentals, you know, they did not have a plan uh, or a process for continuous improvement in their leadership team as an organizational unit, how they communicated it, how they met, how they led strategy. Now, here's the point. If, you know, if you, if you don't have a plan for continuous improvement in the leadership team of which you're a part of, how can you possibly drive continuous improvement across the entire organization? So this is one of my fundamental points. So I the, love that. I the, love that. The, the I... book was a part of that. The book was was proposing through these hundred, let me say, best practices that I gathered, a framework for continuous improvement. Now you don't have to use what I proposed in executive ownership, although I think there are a lot of good ideas in there. But the point is, for all leadership teams, this is a call out. I think that's maybe one of the takeaways from our conversations for your listeners today, whether you're in supply chain or something else. Is like, to what degree do we have a process for continuous improvement in our leadership team? And it doesn't have to be overly sophisticated. Mm. It could be something. It just has to exist. It just it has to exist. Yeah, it could be something as basic as at the conclusion of every meeting, leadership meeting or supply chain meeting, we're going to take 10 minutes to reflect on, you know, how outcome oriented was our meeting and how collaborative was the meeting, you know, high or low, whatever. And then what's one thing we could do in our next management meeting that would enable us to either be more results oriented or more collaborative. And that's just a simple tool to drive continuous improvement. I've got 60 or 70 teams across Europe that are using that basic fundamental question at the conclusion of every board meeting. It's just one step towards continuous improvement. So it could just be a few measures, but like you put that measure in about a thousand shots, that was your metric for improving your sweet spots yeah. shot. And for leadership teams, it could be about meetings or giving each other feedback or something like that. And it's And the impact to the organization is profound. Dan, I, I, I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. I think we, we as leaders get so stuck in and, and all levels of leadership, you know, management, senior management, executive, we are so busy in the day to day and the pressures and the disruption and et cetera, that we fail to establish the fundamentals that we need to do in order to drive continuous improvement for ourselves and those around us. Well, Dan, unfortunately, I, 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 that's, that's well, I was going to say, that's all the time that we've got, Dan. But yeah. before we go, why don't you tell us where we can find your book, the name of the book and where we can find it? Well, the name of my book is called Executive Ownership, Creating Highly Effective Leadership Teams. And you can find that just about any bookstore, Amazon, Hoogandoobal, Barnes & Noble, any bookstore. Go to my website, dannornberg.com, and you'll see a very a variety of portals where you can get that. And uh, I think whether you're a leader in an executive team or supply chain management team or supporting teams or just seeking some self-improvement, you'll find some tips that I think would be useful in the book. I want to thank you for being here. I'd love to talk to you again. I'm sure we'll, we'll hear from you again. And more importantly, I think our listeners would really appreciate from you know going back to basics and some fundamental uh, management tips. So thanks so much for that. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us today at Transform Talks. I hope you found this valuable. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, comment, and share. I'll see you at the next one.